Hey, nice to see you. Today we're starting a new series. I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means to be worshipful. And I'll bet you had no idea and probably can't even imagine why or how me running into Danny Ainge, one of the players in the 1980s Boston Celtics team, has something to do with worship. <laughs> but hold that thought. I'll get back to it. I need to first make sure we keep trying to get on the same page when it comes to the whole concept of rechurch. I was out driving on Interstate 33 earlier this week behind a monster pickup truck, like the one with the big wheels. But not only did it have big wheels, it had a big, huge muffler. Not did it have a big, huge muffler. It was pushing out so much exhaust that like literally four, five, six, seven cars behind were just we were all just coughing. It was like being behind a, an old steam engine. It's just billowing smoke. And I thought to myself, you know, if that truck was in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, it wouldn't be on the road right now. And here's why. In Pennsylvania, there's a mandatory annual inspection that covers all sorts of things, including emissions. And this guy is like... He's working overtime to get like a thousand cars worth of emissions into the air. It would, never, it would never matter because there are these inspections. That's what rechurch is in a sense, an inspection. It, we're not trying to redesign the car. The car is the car. Church is church. The basics are the basics. The fundamentals are the fundamentals. We're not going to change those. But it is worth looking at and inspecting what you do and asking God to, to be a part of it and asking all that are a part of it to be involved in an honest look at what might be wrong, what might need to change, what might need to get better, what's really, really good the way it is, so keep it. Rechurch is an extended period of inspection, analysis, uh, figuring out how to be the best church we can possibly be to one another and to the city and our communities. Um, I got some, and I want you to be a part of the process. Everybody. I got some really valuable feedback from um, a baby boomer. And that's, that's what she called herself, a boomer. Some of you know Mary Clark. She was very gracious, very respectful, as usual in her communication. But here are the brass tacks of what she said. I'm quoting, I think in the emphasis on the next generation or the postmodern generation or whatever you wish to call it, because that's what we talk about a lot as a church, like how are we going to reach this next generation that's not coming to church? And she's saying, in addition to that, we need to also affirm the value and the worth of every generation because all people of all ages are equally loved, equally valued by our Heavenly Father, and He longs that all of us come to repentance. That's a great point. That's a great point. We are very focused on the next generation, but the reality is, of course, God loves all people. It doesn't matter about their age. And there are all ages and all generations have not yet come to Christ. And they're all being affected by the culture around us. And so, of course, that's a good reproof. That's a good check. That's very valuable. Good, good for you, Mary. And I want to encourage the rest of you to be thinking and, and imagining and praying about these things. 
and bringing them to the surface so that we can be a part of it. This isn't a game. I'm not, we're not, I'm not trying to slow bake you. I got all the answers and we're just kind of going through the motions and we're going to tell you what is. No, this is a legit process. She went on and said, I think COVID has created a sensitivity among boomers that wasn't there pre-COVID. And that is that we are disposable. That's a, that's a powerful statement. But you understand where she's coming from, right? She says, we're an impediment. We're what is keeping the economy and keeping normal life from returning. She's saying the baby boomer, the, the, the older among us are the impediment. That's how it feels. That's the message. We should just succumb to the herd and die off and then everything would be better. Whew. How sad is that even as a passing comment, passing thought, even that it might even begin to be true in someone's mind. It's not true in my mind. I, I don't know where I would be in my life without the direction and the mentorship and the guidance and the example of those that have gone before me. And if we have communicated anything other than that, this is the exact kind of thing that can correct that sort of error. I, I don't think I've made that mistake in my heart, <laughs> but that's not always, I don't always know. So this is really good feedback. Every generation, every person, not just the young, tend to lose their way and become inculcated by cultural messages and distortions of the truth. Every generation and every person is critical to the health and effectiveness of the local church. We oftentimes refer to 1 Corinthians 12 where it says, in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, the church, every one of them. That means you. You've been, if you're a part of this church, you've been placed in this church by God just as he wanted them or you to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? There are many parts, one body, and every single one of them is valuable. I was thinking about how Tammy and Alicia during last week's worship talked about uh, old wineskins and new wineskins, and they looked at that from a particular angle, and I looked at it from another angle. It goes like this, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. They had a great point on that. It's like, look, we need, to be, we need to be renewed by God so that the new things he's doing don't burst us open. That's, that's, that's a good point. Here's another point. Old wineskins aren't useless. We don't want the old wineskins to burst. Many times they're holding vintage wine. It's good those that have gone before us, those that are, that are older, those that are in their twilight years, those that are, are, are elders and leaders may not be able to tolerate all of the newness of the next church. But doesn't mean they become invaluable by any stretch of the imagination. We need to care for all of the wineskins and how we do what we do. This is a great word from Mary to me. And these are good words from the scriptures to our hearts. Thank you, Mary. That's the spirit of ReChurch. 
Let's work together and be a good church for one another, all of us, and for our communities and cities, all of them. That, that's, that's, that's where we're headed. All right, so we're starting a new series. It's called The Core. And what I'm suggesting, what I've just suggested is, is part of the reason we're starting here. Normally, we would do our value series in January. But because we want to reinforce the idea that we're not changing our core values, our statements of faith, our core beliefs. Jesus is at the center. God is uh, uh, our, our king, right? It's all that stuff is. And so we thought, let's reinforce that. Let's, let's, let's lower the anxiety about, oh, well, how much are we changing? Well, we might change some methods here and there and focus our attention on certain things, but our core values are going to be the same. And why not start out by revisiting those and making sure we know what we're talking about? For us, the core values are worshipful, relational, missional. And the basis for those being our core values are they are things Jesus highlighted. You'd think it might be difficult to sort through everything that Jesus said or did. You think it's hard to do that just looking through the scriptures and looking through the gospels. The very last line of the gospel of John, John recorded this. Jesus did many other things as well. So he did what he did to capture it in his gospel. And he said, Jesus did many other things. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that it would, they would be written in. <laughs> Jesus' three years of public life was an overwhelming demonstration of beauty and goodness and godliness and love. <laughs> so much so that even writers trying to write everything down that they couldn't even come too close to making a fraction. So how do, you, how do you discover what it is that is most important? When Jesus was asked that well, not that very question, but a similar question by the religious leaders of the time. But what is most important? What is the greatest of the commandments, Jesus? He responded this way. And this is what we focus in on for our values. When asked the question, what's most important? This is what he said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say all of the law and all of the prophets, all of the instruction of the Old Testament hang on these two commandments. And Jesus is borrowing from the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy to be specific, is where he draws those truths. And then he adds a third, not long before he leaves to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The first two, love God, love others, are the great commandments. This is referred to as the Great Commission. And that's where we get our three values. To be worshipful, to be relational like Jesus, to worship God, to, to love like Jesus loved others, and to be missional, to go and make disciples.
Now, when Jesus boiled everything down to those three, he didn't do away with all of the moral law. He, he came and in himself, he lived it out perfectly. And he is the demonstration of the Christian life. So if he lived it out, we certainly still have to live it out. He fulfilled it and continues to challenge his people to adhere to it. But he says that if you will do these three things, you will be able to and most probably living out them all. Worship God, love others as Jesus loved you, reach those who don't know God. Be missional. So we're going to talk about those three things for the next couple weeks. What it is to be worshipful, what it is to be relational, what it is to be missional. Those are our core values. Those are the things we stand on. Why? Because Jesus highlighted them and said these are important. And if you do these, you do it all. So let's talk about worshipful. And let me start here by finishing the metaphor. <laughs> Me and Danny Ainge standing in a donut shop. 10 years after he retired, I was still enamored by really any Celtic from the 80s. And here I am suddenly in a shop and it's just me and Danny standing there. And you can imagine in all my excitement how I must have acted and the kinds of things I must have said. I didn't, nothing. I've kicked myself for years over that. It's like, I ha how many opportunities do you have to meet someone that, that falls into that sort of, sort of hero, iconic personhood status? I didn't say anything. It's just me and Danny. He was ordering coffee. I was ordering donuts. I'm standing there like this is totally normal. Why? I don't know exactly. I think I was afraid of being embarrassed. I was afraid of, of him... Uh, uh, pushing me aside like every other fan who bothers him when he's trying to buy coffee in a donut shop. I was afraid of saying something stupid or looking stupid. I was ashamed or actually worried about the potential of being ashamed. The reason this has something to do with worship is that it highlights something that's true about relationships. It's probably not truly fair to say that I know Danny Ainge or that I knew Danny Ainge, but I kind of knew him, knew a lot about him. He didn't know me at all. So there is no relationship there. The richest, deepest, most rewarding relationships are the ones where not just one person knows the other person, but they know each other. And I don't know if you've thought about this. You, you, it may have crossed your mind. You, you may have surmised at some point in time that worshiping God is, is getting to know him right, to hear from him. When we, when we sing and we use that aspect of worship, we, we say truths about God to remind us of what we know about him. But have you ever thought about the fact that worship isn't complete unless the one you're worshiping knows you? I think maybe more often than not, when we worship, we're focused rightly on God but we're not attending to allowing God to know us. Why? I think the same reason I didn't say anything to Danny Ainge. We're ashamed. We're embarrassed. We've done something wrong. But God actually tells us 
um, Jesus taught this in what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. I'm paraphrasing for brevity's sake. If you come to church and you have your gift that you want to give at the altar, but you realize you are not right, you're not reconciled to your brother or your sister, leave your gift there, go, make it right, and then come back and offer your gift. Jesus is essentially saying, look, not only is it necessary for both parties to be known for worship to happen. You can't really worship unless you are fully transparent and obedient in the ways that God's asked us. Say, look, don't come in here and, and worship me and act like everything's fine in your life. If you are not reconciled, that has to come first. When you come in here, two things happen. <laughs> I always wonder, why would that come to your mind when you're going to worship? That's what God does. He wants to know you. And the reality is he does know you. And he says, look, what's wrong with your life right now? He exposes your lack of obedience, your lack of reconciliation. What do we do? We listen to that. We go, we take care of it. And then we come back. And here we are now in a worship space. We're worshiping the one who knows us and that we have been made known in his presence. That is worship. I'm going to fit that into the, the broader perspective here, but let's back up just a little bit. You worship something. You worship something. I know this because you have been designed to be impressed. You've been designed to be attracted to people and things. You, you are designed to be drawn in and to become loyal to certain things. Uniquely, oftentimes, with perspective to your personality and, and who you are. Think about what you get really jazzed about. Things that you are deeply committed to. Stuff that you are um, willing, if not ex even exhaustively, to work for in this life. Think of the parts of your life that occasionally cause you to neglect other important parts of your life. Think about the things that you have made or are making personal sacrifices in order to achieve or procure something. Those are the things that we are tempted consciously or unconsciously, to worship. And God says, I belong in that space. Because I've, I've blessed you with many blessings. But they're not to be worshipped. They're not to be trusted. They're not to be counted upon for all that you need. That is for me alone. We're designed to worship. And we will. The question is, who or what? In the book of John, when Jesus is pointed out for the first time by John the Baptist, early on in John chapter 1, the first thing that Jesus says is actually a question. You know what it was? What's the very first thing that Jesus said? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, he says, follow me to somebody. Nope. 
He starts deeper than that. He says, what do you want? Think about that. Jesus knows. It all starts right there. What do you want? Because what you want most in this life will likely be what you worship. Augustine says this about the core of the human identity, referring to God. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We are made to worship, and we are made to worship the one who created us, and we will never be at rest. We will never have what we will need. We will never feel protected. We will never feel as though we have all that we need. We will never be fulfilled when we look other places. We will never rest until we rest in him. And when Jesus compels someone to follow him, to trust him, he is in essence saying, will you make me your want? Do you want me as your center, as your first love, the one for whom you will sacrifice, the one you listen to, the one you search for? Do you want me? We're all searching for something. We're all worshiping something. If, if anything good has come out of this pandemic, for me, it has actually helped me break the bonds of certain things that I was overly committed to and interested in and arguably worshiping. In fact, one of them returned not two weeks ago, and I can feel myself going, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to spend my time there. I've been separated from this thing that really didn't bring me any joy, but I had spent a lot of time in pursuit of. And I was like, oh, I don't want that. What we worship is so insidious. It is so secretive. It's got our hearts and we don't know it. A God-worshipping life is a constant and continual effort of turning away from other loves and back to the one who created us, whose son demonstrated the greatest love for us, who alone has the power to fill your soul, to calm your heart, to change your life, to give you life. To worship God is to put God at the center rather than you and your various wants. This can feel very scary. To give up what we are after is, doesn't feel all that natural because there's something about what we're after. There's some lie that we believe that what we're after is giving us and will continue to give us what we need. And so we're tempted not to break away because it gives us a little bit. It gives us a little bit of what we want and what we need. There's no sense denying that. When you turn to sinful things in this life, anybody who tells you it's not worth it doesn't really know what they're talking about because it is kind of worth it for a minute or two or ten or sometimes dangerously so for years. But in the end, it destroys you. How could it not? God is at the center of all things. 
He is the one that is on the throne. To live life revolving around something other than the one who created it all is destined to end in destruction. Nonetheless, it's really, really hard for us to convince ourselves to let go of what we love and grab onto God. It's illustrated really, really well in the Old Testament, a book, Isaiah. Uh, Jesus used Isaiah all the time. I, I, I would venture to say it was one of his favorite Old Testament books, Isaiah. And in chapter six, we read this about this really cool occurrence of worship. It's, it goes like this. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, this is Isaiah speaking, I saw, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him, and I'm paraphrasing here, you'll thank me later, some kind of heavenly beings were flying around and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Now, do you see the picture? Isaiah had lost his king. He had lost the one whom he felt protected by, he felt provided for by, that he, he felt as though he was um, uh, uh, given all things. He was, this, this was his comfort zone. He had a king. They had a king. And the king died. And they were restless. And they were uh, concerned and anxious. And Uzziah has a dream. Isaiah, Isaiah has a dream. And he realizes, oh, no, no, no. There is a king higher than this earthly king. And what he sees is the Lord God enthroned in the highest throne and all of the heavenly beings are focused on him, centered on him, saying, holy, 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 perfect, perfect, perfect. The Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of it. This is the center. This is the core of all of creation and all of heaven is circulating around, focused on this center, which is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah is like, yes, I don't need to be anxious that this sub king is gone because the king is still on the throne and will always be on the throne. The doorposts were shaking, the, the thresholds were uh, uh, shaking, the place was filled with, with smoke, and look at what happens to Isaiah. He allows himself to be known. He doesn't go, yeah, this is great, this is perfect, this is how it should be, and I belong here. <laughs> He's like, woe to me. I'm ruined. Why? He'd been trusting other things. He'd forgotten about his true king. And then suddenly he was in his presence. Let me out of here. Let me, let me back down. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've, I've said foul things. I, I live among people who are unclean. Everyone's forgotten about the king. My eyes have seen the king. I remember but I don't deserve to be here, so he bows down. And then one of those heavenly beings flew over to him, try to get by the metaphor, it's difficult to grasp, had a live coal in its hand in which he'd taken tongues from the altar and he touched his mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin has been atoned for. He was forgiven. He was known. He made himself known. He humbled himself in the space of the king. He worshipped. 
The Lord saw him, knew him, didn't gloss it away, forgave him. And then says to him, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And he says, here I am. Send me. We see a man who's suddenly insecure about losing his center, his earthly king, that gave him a sense of protection and provision. He sees a vision of the one that is better, bigger, higher, more powerful. It causes him to yield, to bow, to move away from the center and let the God be at the center. We see a man who expected judgment in his misplaced love and trust and worship. He deserves it. He knows he deserves it. He's ready to suffer the consequences, but instead he receives mercy. And then we see a man who hears God and is able to respond to God in his restored state, ready to move and do whatever God deserves, whatever, whatever God desires. Surely, whatever God would suggest, whatever God would command must be the right and only and best thing to do. A number of things come from a worshipful life, knowing God, being known, discovering true peace, enjoying a sense of belonging, gaining a purpose. The question for all of us is, where are we currently tempted to find such things? It is those things that we offer our worship, our resources, our skills, our hearts. Those things will, of course, provide you something that gives you a good feeling or some escape or some success, but it's temporary and it's natural. I <laughs> love this verse in Hosea. He says, they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. <laughs> I don't know what that is, like today's Twinkies. I don't know. It's like they like their raisin cakes more than they like that like, they loved God. They just loved going into the, into the, into the temples and eating the raisin cakes. A God-worshipping life is a constant and continual effort of turning away from other loves, I'm repeating, and back to the one who created us, whose son demonstrated the greatest love for us, who has all the power to fill us, to, to fill our soul, to calm our heart, to change your life, to give you life. How do you do that? Let me just give you a couple things. I'm not even going to work these out right now. Search the scriptures and discover whether God is reliable. Look and see who God is. Study Jesus and determine whether he's trustworthy for following. Pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. Let God reveal yourself to you. Right? What am I saying there? Be honest. Don't be fake. Don't be hypocritical. There is no worship that happens in the midst of hypocrisy. Receive the forgiveness of God that he's offered you in Jesus. Actively trust God when you hear from him. Do what he says. Be who Jesus says to be. Go where God says to go. And notice how little we've talked about music and singing. That is a form of worship without a doubt. 
It is good to gather. We, we know, we remember now even more than we ever knew how good it is to gather, to sing and to exalt the one who is on the highest throne. We'll get back to that as soon as we possibly can. But that's not an inhibitor to our worship. Worship is a life. Worship is a day by day, minute by minute posture before God that results in you knowing him, him knowing you, which results in a content and courageous life of meaning and, and transformation and obedience and failure and repentance and forgiveness and purpose. Worship leads to eternal living. If you're trying to experience the presence of God and you're not, you're wondering why there is no blessing. You're feeling distant from God. You're anxious all the time. You feel like you're praying to avoid. Things happen and they upset you and you don't even know why. You're devastated when things go wrong. You can tie this all back to what you want. To Jesus' first question. As a church, no matter how the re-church goes, the core of who we are will be a challenge and an initiative and an intention to see God high and lifted up. when we worship is when we experience all that God has for us. So let me invite you to keep worshiping. Keep searching for him. Keep trusting, keep hearing, keep obeying. Allow yourself to be known. Find time. Day by day, minute by minute, to walk away from the loves of this world and make God your center. Make Jesus your king. Allow the spirit to fill you. That's, that's part of the plan. Let's keep being worshipful.